Well, welcome back to uh, The Professor and the Hack, episode 82. It's another special uh, of our podcast today because uh, the professor, Peter Van Onselen, is uh, away on leave. Well-deserved at the moment. He's got a big year coming up, including uh, flogging off his book, How Good Is Scott Morrison? Get in your pre-orders now. Uh, once again, though, we're tremendously lucky to have with us a stand-in professor, as we did last time, Simon Jackman from the U.S. Study Center at Sydney University, because all our eyes have been really on the U.S. Simon, hello again and welcome. A pleasure to be with you. Were you up at three o'clock in the morning or whatever it was to, to watch the big show? Uh, 4 a.m. for the speech, yeah. So I set an alarm for about uh, 3.45 so I could catch the speech live and, and then grabbed a little bit of sleep before um, a big round of uh, media through yesterday morning. But yeah, I did see it live, yeah. Now, be honest with us. You were really there for the Lady Gaga, weren't you? <laughs> um, Lady Gaga, who has become the you know establishment singer of national anthems at things like inaugurations and Super Bowls, and then um, being upstaged by the 22-year-old poet laureate. It was remarkable, all that side, the, 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 the amount of glitz and showbiz they were able to put into a socially distanced and lockdown inauguration. But that, that's always a great element of any presidential inauguration. Yeah, I mean, we will get onto more important matters, but um, for someone for whom Lady Gaga first came to my attention when she turned up at some event wearing a dress made of meat, uh, at that moment, you wouldn't have looked at her and said, well, there's a woman who's going to be uh, singing at an inauguration, but she did. But one, I thought, spoke to what Biden was trying to do there because there was the, uh, the young poet, there was Lady Gaga, there was J-Lo, who interrupted her singing to shout out in Spanish. Obviously, that's an important part of the electorate. Um, there was also uh, the, the performance by Garth Brooks, who's a country singer, and uh, enormous in the kind of places that traditionally might be seen as Trump heartland. So it was almost as if in the music and in the performances, they were also trying to say, look, the message that Biden's putting out that he wants to be a president for all Americans is kind of somewhat reflected in the choice of the performers. Yeah, absolutely, Hugh. Um, I thought the Garth Brooks choice um, was interesting. Uh, he sang a cappella, um, Amazing Grace, and acknowledged President Obama's amazing um, version of Amazing Grace uh, when he was president. But absolutely, they were, they were sort of going broad uh, demographically, culturally, socially, and, and that was no accident. Uh, nice resonance with the theme of unity. Uh, that was one of the big motifs of, um, of Biden's inaugural speech. So how do you think all that is going to go? Because this now becomes a critical question for the United States. As you try to assess the United States, let's say it's a, if the United States was 100 people, uh, we've just learned that a little over 50 are keen for, for Joe Biden. How many of what's left of that 50% of the natural Republican side do you think, uh, if you like, Trump to the death type loyalists? I, I'd, I'd put um, sort of the rusted on piece at about 30%. Uh, of of the electorate and and probably thirty percent of the public uh, that might be pushing it a little too far, but the big open question though, Hugh, is how much damage Trump did to brand Trump over those last couple of weeks. We don't quite know uh, the answer to that, and 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 it was you'd think that haven't we seen enough to know that there's nothing that will you know take those rusted on diehard uh, Trump people away from Trump. 
And I just wonder if that was a bridge too far. Um, and, and we'll see, this is where the next couple of weeks are so, so interesting for the question you put here. Um, what a Senate trial of Donald Trump does. What does it look like when you're going to see a split among uh, congressional Republicans, particularly in the Senate, where there's going to be an up or down question to convict uh, Donald Trump and, and therefore essentially ban him from ever setting foot on the national political stage again. He, he will be found ineligible uh, if, if convicted and maybe not even if convicted. Um, the, the, the Senate might even move to do this on a straight up majority vote um, uh, to make it so that uh, Trump uh, is ineligible to run for federal office ever again. And, and the split that that will induce uh, in the Republican Party is going to be one of the most fascinating things to watch and indeed how it blows back uh, onto this bigger project that Biden articulated and that of bringing the country together at a time where it faces multiple, multiple crises. So then if you look at the people whose job it is to try to bring the Republican Party back together, and of course, there's no one more powerful in that game than the Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell. Uh, the word is that he has reached out to the Democrats asking them uh, to hold off this uh, vote on conviction to try to delay those proceedings. He has been quite clear in some of his language since the riot on Capitol Hill, calling the people unhinged, saying the mob was fed by lies. What do you think is McConnell's game here? Oh, I think he'd, like a lot of Republicans, they prefer this just went away. Um, votes that split your side of politics are votes you really don't want uh, to, uh, to have to have if you can at all avoid it. It's just that uh, McConnell no longer has agenda control. Uh, he has gone from being majority leader to minority leader. He does not control the agenda of the Senate anymore. And I think Pelosi and Schumer are holding uh, Democratic Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and now Democratic Majority Leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer. They hold all the cards with respect to the agenda. And, and again, if there's an issue that does more damage to your opposition than it does to you in terms of splits, um, then you probably are inclined to bring that issue on. And I think now it's just a matter of thinking through the timing and the tactics of it. I think there has to be a trial. This has to be a reckoning I think America has to have. Um, but the, the, I think the real near-term tactical political question is how much does it blow up the Biden agenda of getting cabinet nominations approved by the Senate and seated so they can start governing movement on COVID recovery, which I think there's a lot of bipartisan support for. How much does a, a say, a week-long trial of Donald Trump, how much does that get in the way? And in whose interests is the timing and the nature of that trial? Uh, all those decisions. Uh, but those are, the, the decision makers here are no longer McConnell. He is sort of now hostage to fate uh, and, and the decisions that will be made to some extent. Uh, by, by, as I said, Pelosi and Schumer. No, it's really interesting you say Pelosi and Schumer. These are mighty egos, mighty operators in Congress. They are veterans of the game, much has been made of their age. How much is Biden a player in the decisions that are going to be made up on the Hill about the timing of any Senate trial? Yeah, great question. I think, look, he's got to be torn too. He wants to get on with it, but I think also has to recognize there has to be an accountability moment. Um, the gun is loaded. Pelosi has, has got right now, she's got articles of impeachment. She has yet to transmit them in a formal sense to the Senate. And, and once the Senate receives them, 
Um, the machinery starts to work constitutionally. There has to be a trial. Uh, it has to be rather expeditiously done. And, and so, so, I so, think- so, let's, so let's be clear on that then. The Senate constitutionally doesn't have the option of ignoring the message that's been delivered to them by the House. No, they do not. But they have an, a ton of discretion, Hugh, as to the nature and timing and duration of the trial. They can move perhaps just as swiftly, frankly, as the House did. Remember the House, the impeachment was done like no other impeachment. Um, it didn't go to committee. It came virtually straight to the floor. Um, there was very uh, limited debate. It was all done and dusted in under two working days. Um, the Senate, uh, and again, if it was under Republican control, I imagine um, this might be the case, they'd go wham, bam, and have a very quick trial and, and, and get it done. So we'll see how Schumer, what Schumer wants to do. And I think that's where Biden might be the voice in his ear saying, okay, I know you have to do this politically. We have to do this as a country, but let's not drag it out. Let's, let's, um, let's get it done and dusted. I'd say, you know, and a little bit of soundings I've been taking suggests, you know, five working days, a working week of the United States Senate. And, and probably they're going to walk and chew gum. I think they'll have split sessions day by day say, the afternoon dealing with the impeachment trial and the morning dealing with, you know, regular business, in particular, cabinet nominations, some well, of this I mean, legislation. Sure, with the numbers they can get through, we've already seen the cabinet nominations going through and, and being voted through very, very quickly. So you, your sense of it is, is that they won't try to use some process that kicks the can of the impeachment trial down the road, you know, for a few months or something by, by some process, processional delays, uh, rather get it done and, and then just see where the Republicans are, whether they, they convict or not. Yeah, I don't think Pelosi can delay too long. It was, you know, it was considered so urgent um, that they did it in record time in the House um, to then sit on it for months um, and maybe you say, well, Trump is no longer president. The, the, the clear and present danger aspect of this is gone. But I think it becomes then, you know, she is starts to become a political liability for her if she just sits on it forever. I think it's a reckoning that has to occur. I think it'll, they'll try to do it pretty expeditiously. And I expect, you know, in the next two or three weeks, we might see it uh, come forward. It's interesting. I thought that when you saw Trump on a, just as he was boarding Air Force One for the last time to fly down to uh, Florida, he made his statements to a pretty small crowd of people, his family members, chief among them. I thought that uh, what was intriguing there is that it wasn't a triumphalist speech. It wasn't a defiant, I'll be back, you just wait speech. Um, you know, he gave all the usual stuff. What we've done is amazing. We weren't a regular administration. Um, he, he sort of, in a sense, took ownership of any future economic benefits that might come under Biden, claiming that you know, what do you say, elements of our economy are going to be a rocket ship up or because of the efforts that he's put in there. But, but then I thought he was a little bit uh, modest and subdued towards the base. He says, I'll always fight for you. I will be watching. I'll be listening. Later on, he says, we love you. We'll be back in some form. And then he made a point of thanking Mike Pence. He has spent a lot of time thanking Mike Pence in recent times and thanking Congress, which seemed to be a kind of a, uh, you know, be gentle with me type of messaging towards <laughs> those in Congress. Um, I, I was struck by, in fact, that, that he wasn't at that moment triumphalist and, and damn the torpedoes, I'll be back. Yeah, good observation, Hugh. I, I, maybe it's a, 
maybe the emotion actually got to someone like Donald Trump. Um, um, number one, that might be my first hypothesis. Number two, perhaps some realism. Look, coming back after losing, you know, a one-term losing president, that that's a that's a that's a dubious distinction in in American political history. You know, you've got to go back to Grover Cleveland in the nineteenth, uh, early twentieth century. Pardon me to um, to find a case of a, uh, of a of a president who comes back like that, and it, it's quite unlikely to happen. I think, and and I think I read an interview where Trump said privately this was reported out um he'll be four years older too um is it something he wants to do uh four years from now to muster that energy and and put the band back together and and there's a i think there's a serious serious chance and and probably more likely than not i probably just put it above 50 percent chance that he will be found ineligible that congress will find him to have violated section three of the 14th amendment that says you can't hold federal office if you've engaged or conspired to engage in insurrection uh, against the United States. Um, and I think independently of, the, of a two-thirds vote on conviction in the Senate, I, would not, I, I think it probably slightly more likely than not that on a straight-up majority vote, um, both houses of Congress pass a resolution deeming that Donald J. Trump is, is such a person, is no longer eligible uh, by, by dint of his actions on, on January 6th and the weeks and months leading up to it, he's no longer eligible to hold federal office. And, and maybe that is playing on, on Trump's mind as well. That one form or another, though, keep an eye on a media play. He, he, I think he needs the money as well. Um, I, and I, I think the easiest way for Trump, Inc. to start generating cash flow is probably through some sort of media play and, and that's the one I'm I'll be keeping an eye on over the over the months ahead so not in office but in our faces um, we'll take a quick break and uh, and talk about maybe the Biden agenda particularly on stuff that matters to us climate and uh, some of the pivot back into the alliances and so on uh, and and come back in just a second hi I'm Leah Harris in the where's William Tyrrell podcast I told the story of the little boy who disappeared from his foster grandmother's home more than five years ago as the journalist who's been on the journey since day one. It's a story that is as baffling as it is heartbreaking, and I'm glad we could give William's foster parents the chance to tell their side of the story in their first interview in almost four years. You can listen to Where's William Tyrrell and our other 10 Speaks podcasts on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. This is episode 82 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimminson. And the professor today, Professor Simon Jackman from the US Studies Center, as uh, Peter Van Onselen is on leave. And we're certainly uh, focusing, as most of the world has been, on events in the United States. Um, Okay, we've talked about Trump. Let's talk about Biden. Uh, immediately to work, immediately doing executive orders, immediately overturning a whole bunch of those things that were pet projects for Trump, including uh, notably on, on, uh, on COVID, on, on climate, on the World Health Organization. Let's talk about climate. Some people are saying that uh, reading into what Biden is, has got planned, that he doesn't want to just do lip service to a new pivot on climate policy out of the United States, that he really wants to be a global leader in this and to get things going. Is that your read of, 
of the Biden presidency and climate? Um, yeah, I think it's it's hard for him to walk back from you know an essay he published in early 2020, this aspiration to put climate change considerations at the heart and center of American foreign policy, of even American national security policy. It's an issue that the Democrats, who now, at least for the time being, uh, narrowly hold both House and Senate, they are going to demand action on. Um, I think the, the and, and indeed the appointment of former Secretary of State and party elder John Kerry to this climate czar role, um, the fact that you've put a former Secretary of State, you know, equivalent to our Minister for Foreign Affairs, as someone with an explicitly international brief in their recent policy and political history, putting a person like that in charge of your climate change uh, policy coordination, that speaks to how he sees, I think, one of the keys to U.S. leadership is the U.S. no longer being an outlier on, on climate change. I think Biden wants to put the U.S. back at the center of that. It's a, it's a really important thing, not just in terms of policy substance, but also in the optics of this, that among the many issues the United States is not going to cede leadership, say, to China or, or Europe on in particular, will be sort of a, what will end up being a century-defining issue. And, 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 and that is, of course, um, the challenge of climate change. Well, his rhetorical uh, flourish on this at the inauguration speech could not have been clearer. It's quite a stark sentence, this. He says, a cry for survival comes from the planet itself, a cry that can't be any more desperate or any more clear now. A cry for survival is an extraordinary statement that we've not heard from anyone previously in such office in the United States. Obama never used such language. What does this mean for Australia in terms of the pressure that might now come on us to lift our game as a major exporter still of, of coal and, uh, and still per capita, one of the major emitters. Yeah, I, I, I've thought a lot about this here, and I, I don't think it's going to come, the pressure that you speak of will not come in, in the form of direct pressure that, that Kerry is going to somehow muscle Australia uh, or even on the sidelines of international war and the many, many, many government-to-government interactions that go on between the two governments who, whose working relationship is extraordinarily close. I don't think it's going to come that way. Um, we are great friends and, and allies, perhaps none stronger. I don't think they are ever going to put an ally like Australia in, in such an uncomfortable position publicly. And indeed, what could they point to? At, at this point, I think Australia's credentials with respect to Paris are at least as strong as, as the United States. The, the way the pressure might come, Hugh, is, is I think more likely to come through a public opinion channel. And that is just in the natural way, the fact that we are having a, a podcast about American politics and policy, the, the, the close attention the Australian public pays to uh, developments in the United States. As the United States in its public and its states and local governments and its corporations and its big private institutions move on climate change, as technologies are developed and adopted, perhaps with nothing to do with policy from Washington, but as that changes, there is all these spillovers into Australian public opinion and demand for Australian policy action on the issue. And I suspect that will be the more challenging 
vector, if you will, of transmission on climate change policy for the Australian government than any overt or even covert um, uh, uh, government to government uh, pressure that we might get. The one possible wrinkle might be, and I, and I, I would, I, if, 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 if the Biden administration were to erect some sort of trade barriers or trade policy about preferred suppliers or taking into account the carbon emissions in the chain um, of, of imports into the United States, so border taxes that are, have a carbon component in them, that, that could be bad news for Australia. But I think it would be ferocious lobbying by the Australian government um, to find exemptions for a close and ally and strategic partner like Australia if ever uh, that were to come to pass. It's interesting that Ted Cruz plainly sees himself as, uh, as a key player in the future of the Republican Party. Uh, he's got his eyes plainly on 2024. Immediately, the announcement was about uh, re-signing up to, cli- to the Paris uh, Climate Agreement. Uh, he was tweeting out that uh, Joe Biden cares more about the citizens of Paris, a fairly absurd argument that he does about the citizens of Pittsburgh. Um, we've seen in Australia how this energy debate has, with its populist overtones, has destroyed governments. Is, is it now past the tipping point where Joe Biden can do this and not be destroyed on this subject uh, in, in four years' time? Yeah, and, I, and I, it's not so much Joe Biden. I think it's what happens in two years' time um, to the, the razor-thin majority Democrats have in the House of Representatives. Biden comes in, yes, uh, Democrats control the House and the Senate, but the, the, the Senate margin cannot get any thinner. It's 50-50 with Vice President Harris, the tie-breaking vote. And, and in the House, it's the smallest uh, majority for a, 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 uh, the party of the president. I think, you, I think you've got to go back to World War II to find a smaller working majority where a president comes to power uh, controlling uh, the House. He's got, there's six seats you know, in a 435-seat chamber. Is the, is the, and, and history tells us that there's a swing against the party of the president historically at midterms. And so there'll be some moderate Democrats who are looking at, if you ask them to take a big, bold vote on climate, I think the answer is going to be no. <laughs> um, so that, that may be the, the handbrake here on, on radical policy action, um, or you know, relatively or even progressive policy action, forget radical, um, maybe just the reticence of House members that the, you know, the 20 most marginal Democratic House seats will be, no, we can't do that. And, and, and again, in the American system, party discipline is nowhere near as strong as we see in parliamentary systems like Australia. Those votes will walk. Um, and so I think Biden can play the game as, you know, being a, a seasoned co- congressional uh, veteran himself. He'll know that the votes on there. Pelosi is a superb vote counter. So I think the trick will be what can pass and 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 not damage you know doom our chances at retaining the house in in 2022 i think that that and and i suspect there's not much that's a very very thin window and most of the action here here is therefore going to come on the form of executive orders that that um as trump proved on climate change you, the federal government uh, how it purchases things how it, the, its regulatory power there is a ton of scope to move there. But I think that's why I think something huge, big ticket that really frog leaps the US, say, past where Australia is with respect to its climate policy. I think that's, that's kind of unlikely just because of the political realities in Washington. 
Fascinating uh, insight, Simon. Uh, before we go, China, we've got to talk about it. Really sure. interesting thing happened a minute after um, Biden got uh, sworn in. China put a block on uh, the outgoing Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and 27 other senior officials uh, attached to the uh, Trump administration, uh, banning them from uh, not only ever doing business in China, Hong Kong, or Macau, or ever setting foot in it. Now, I'm aware that in his dying days of, of his period in office, Mike Pompeo uh, released a statement describing genocide as being the behavior of the Chinese towards the Uyghur minority in Xinjiang province. Um, have you seen anything like this before? What are the Chinese up to just um, with that act? And then we'll get on to the future of maybe Biden. Yeah, look, you've got to go back to the Cold War with Russia to find anything remotely close. Um, but it was, it was notable Pompeo on one of his last acts as Secretary of State uh, making a you know a finding by the department um, that that China was engaged in in genocide and um, and look Hugh interestingly uh, Lindsey Graham in um, the Senator Lindsey Graham in the hearing um, for the confirmation of uh, Biden's Secretary of State or nominated Secretary of State Tony Blinken said, um, you know, basically asked him, do you think there's a genocide going on uh, with respect to the Uyghurs? And, um, and uh, he did not resile. Tony Blinken uh, did not dispute that characterization, suffice to say. And so it's one thing to sanction an outgoing Secretary of State. But in terms of, you know, I think the, the way the American government is thinking about this issue, there is going to be no change on, 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 on that particular issue with respect to China. And more broadly, here, and this is the bigger point, China as strategic competitor and problem number one, international problem number one uh, for the United States. Uh, Trump and Pompeo elevated that uh, in, in the American consciousness. Um, some people say it was long overdue, but that is now set and there is no Democrat, uh, certainly no Democrat that's going to be around power over the next four years who disputes that characterization. Um, that, that remains. The only distinction for China is that it's one thing to sanction an outgoing Secretary of State. There's no way they're going to do that to the current Secretary of State. But the, the heat and light in US-China relations and the implications for Australia and the heat and light in our own relationship with China, all that remains. All right. Interesting times ahead. You're a busy man. Simon Jackson, uh, CEO of the United States Studies Center there at uh, Sydney University. Uh, Professor Jackman, thank you so much for being our guest prof for this episode in these momentous times. Hugh, always a pleasure and um, big shoes to fill, um, but happy to fill them for you uh, <laughs> two weeks in a row now. My pleasure. Be, be careful what you wish for. All the best, mate. Take care. <laughs> Thanks, you. listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Ten Speaks is proud to introduce a new series of Barry Dubois' Hammer at Home podcast. It's going to be looking at sustainability. Here's a quick preview. G'day everyone, it's Baz Dubois and this is Hammer at Home. Well, we've finally made it to 2021, and a lot happened last year, but as well as the bushfires and COVID-19, I turned 60. 
And you know, it had a profound effect on me. Now, I'm happy to admit that 60 is the new 40, and there's no doubt about it, we're going to live longer. But for me personally, and now I've had a couple of bouts of cancer in the last 10 years, and that's a little worrying, but overall, once you pass middle age, you've got to start thinking about the future, not just for you, but for our family and for our children. See, my children are only eight years old. I know that I won't be around to protect my children the way I want to. And something that's going to have a huge effect on their life is the planet that we live on. I feel as a race, as a human race, and me personally as an individual, I just don't think we're doing enough to nurture the planet and provide the cultural stability, the food and the environment that humans need to flourish. I see the foundations of modern life are this, sociology and culture, economics and environment. And whilst we all talk about sustainability as a standalone pillar, it's not. What sustainability is, is that glue or that reinforcement that holds those philosophies together and it gives them the integrity to stay upright. Without sustainability, the pillars of life will crack, the footings will fail, and we'll have sociology and culture, economics and environment, they'll just be reduced to a pile of rubble, leaving life as we've enjoyed it for so long extinct. Just let that sink in for a second. The things that we take for granted, therefore haven't taken care of, won't exist for our children and our children's children. For this series, I want to focus primarily on environmental sustainability, but any discussion on that topic will need close consideration of all the pillars. Why is it important? What lesson are we sending our children? We all like to think we're doing the right thing by using our keep cups and avoiding one-use plastics, and we are. But there's so much more we have to do as a culture. Until we start valuing humanity, sustainability and the planet we're just going to continue down the wrong track this needs a complete rethink and we are the only people that can guide that rethink i hope you'll join me and the experts i'm going to interview it's going to give us at least the direction we should be taking to a more sustainable life we'll start off with the understanding of carbon the mathematical equation, which is sustainability, and of course how commerce and our consumer dollars can direct commerce into the right direction. Join me, Barry Dubois, on a journey to a more sustainable future. Subscribe to Hammer at Home wherever you get your podcasts to get every episode when they drop.